Hello, and welcome everyone to the inaugural podcast of The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from Continuum. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Los Angeles, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. And for us at Continuum, innovation means the whole process, everything from, now that's a cool idea, all the way through to making something real. This podcast, The Resonance Test, is where we get to chat with folks who are doing this kind of innovation with their work, whatever that work might be. People who understand not just how to make great new things, but how to, how to shepherd these great new ideas from notepads and coffeehouse conversations and conference rooms uh, out into the public. And in the process, wind up making a big change in people's lives and maybe, just maybe, altering our conception of business, culture, and maybe society. In Boston, we've got some amazing folks at the city level dedicated to tackling the subject of education. We're joined today by the man known as the mayor's eyes and ears for schools in Boston, the city's chief of education, Ron Dorsey. Ron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Ron's role includes making sure that everyone's perspectives from all stakeholders are being considered when changes to our schools are being designed, which is obviously a really simple and straightforward and tension-free process, right? (laughs) Uh, We're also here today with my colleague, Augusta Meal, VP of Program Development here at Continuum. Hi, Augusta. Uh, And Augusta's job is to figure out how we use Continuum's processes and methods to solve the problems that our clients put in front of us. Ron and Augusta recently put their heads together on a project around the future of high school, specifically within the Boston school systems. And I don't want to steal anyone's thunder by saying anything else. So Augusta, Ron, I'm going to let you guys talk now and share your experiences. Thanks, Pete. So can we back up just a little bit and talk about your role? Uh, Sure. I know it's a new position for the city, and it would be great to hear a little bit of of um, foundation about what your position is, what your job description is, how you crafted it with the mayor, um, and uh, and what your aspirations are for the for the role. Sure. So we believe that the chief of education role is a first of its kind role uh, in the in the nation. Uh, someone who has the purview of looking at education from stem to stern, wherever learning is happening. And so uh, the mayor really wanted somebody who could think about strategy, organizing civic tables, partnerships and resources, uh, and provide a conduit to the mayor's office all the way from the earliest stages of learning through post-secondary and workforce, whether that's school-based learning or whether that's community-based learning. And so uh, how do we craft the job description The mayor said, I'm interested in you coming to fill this role. And I said, great, let me write the job description. (laughs) Uh, And that's pretty much how it went. I I knew that uh, we had to have a focus on strategy. There's so much that we could be doing across the pipeline, but certainly not enough bandwidth to do it all. So we had to make sure that we were playing in some important and meaningful places and places where we could potentially have outsized impact. And so I spent maybe the first four or five months of my stint in government, really talking to a lot of people, uh, learning about their priorities and synthesizing uh, a strategy for the city. I think the high level is that uh, we've got to concentrate, one, on increasing educational equity in the city. So we know where racial, gender, uh, and income gaps exist among students, and we've got to get really serious about addressing the systemic bias that is leading to those things. Secondly, we've got to make sure that learning becomes a whole community enterprise. So uh, the learning enterprise begins with school, but Boston is a place that has many learning assets. If we think about having probably the uh, 
highest quality and most dynamic youth serving nonprofit sector in America. We've got to engage them, our colleges and universities, our civic institutions. How can we connect all of that and bring it online in a way where learning happens anytime, anywhere in Boston? And then lastly, we've got to really figure out how do we address the non-academic and poverty-related needs of students and families as well. Much of the literature tells us that school performance uh, is heavily impacted by what happens outside of the classroom. So we don't have a really robust education strategy if we aren't paying attention to young people's stability and the stability of the households that they come from. That's great, and it's really good um, context for the high school redesign project itself. And um, you said you're one of one of your um, goals is to focus on education, kind of stem to stern, yes. and think about. Um, what does it look like from the moment a kid enters our system and then actually it sounds to me like you're extending your time horizon um, thinking beyond when do they graduate from high school um, to actually what is their impact in the community mm -hmm. as they mature and become adults how did high school become um, an area of focus as you built your strategy so it, it was a an inflection point, I think, where uh, we knew that there were possibilities for innovation. We knew that we were getting better, but still coming up short uh, in, in many ways. And so, you know, there is a traditional lens through which we look at high school in terms of graduation rates and the requirements that go into that. But there's uh, an incongruence and maybe asymmetry with what readiness actually looks like in post-secondary settings and in workforce settings. And so we wanted to get more serious about uh, fundamentally rethinking what that preparation looks like and making sure that it has uh, greater connectivity to the demands of post-secondary and workforce, but that it also has more relevance uh, for young people as well, where they can start making an immediate contribution uh, and finding and following their passions uh, more immediately and defining some pathways for themselves. It's also on us, I think, to figure out more direct pathways to the kinds of things that young people want to do in life. And high school gives us the opportunity to do that. Uh, it's also a bit of a forcing function for uh, K-8 to reform, I think, as well. Uh, if we think about what that preparation in high school looks like and what readiness for the next phases of life looks like, we have to backward map it. Uh, a little bit to then ask what happens from kindergarten through grade eight that gets you prepared for a more dynamic and expansive high school experience. One of the things you said um, early on in our engagement was, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but like if we're graduating kids with college credits under their belt or with a job waiting for them, um, test scores won't matter as much. And that just seemed pretty radical that, that you're looking at um, redefining what education's purpose is to mm -hmm. some extent. Um, I think right now test scores and, and some of the ways that we assess student performance and student knowledge are really uh, proxies for how we expect them to perform uh, in the future. Um, and I think that there are a lot of uh, reasons to believe that those uh, approximations of students' ability have a level of inaccuracy to them. We can't see some of the, the nuance and complexity of what students are able to do. Uh, and it's also a poor substitute for them sometimes just being able to demonstrate the value that they can add. So uh, instead of guesstimating what a student can do based on uh, standardized test scores or whatever the grade is, the grade is probably even more opaque in some ways uh, than the test score. 
let's uh, let's put young people in real world situations, uh, nurture them there, not just dump them there, but nurture them there and see how they perform. Uh, get them used to receiving a more dynamic kind of feedback that has immediate consequence in how they perform the job or the task the next day they show up to school, the next day they show up to work or their internship. Um, I think if we can start to build uh, more concrete and alternative credentials and ways to assess student work, the proxies that we're using now simply won't have as much relevance. That's really cool because it seems that you are um, reframing uh, sort of the role that education has in the city more broadly, and you're making some value judgments around um how do we want education to contribute to Boston's larger cultural, economic, what have you, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. development? Is that how you and Mayor Walsh are, are? Are you looking at education as more connected to the ecosystem of Boston? Oh, most certainly. Um, you know, we think about it as being a driver for developing civic capacity in the city. So when you think about the leadership that's needed, when you think about the economic drivers uh, for the city, Uh, Education is at the core of that. I think we've also got to think about uh, the connections between education and other sectors. We tend to think about education as kind of a siloed engine that just uh, uh, produces people in the future town or whatever. But again, school performance is uh, influenced by community stability and a number of other things. And so we've got to think about that very proximate ecological relationship. But then we've got to think about what are some of the ways that we've got to repurpose education to be a, a driver of the, the civic wealth, a driver of the civic capacity uh, in some different ways? Uh, but your question um, has me now reflecting on my own process because uh, you said, uh, you know, we're kind of building on a, a value proposition or a, a value perspective, but it makes me think we've got to test those values, and and, uh, I may be operating with some of them implicitly, and it's my own value set, but certainly in a public position, you do have to think about where are the points of agreement and how do we build the collective will uh, and the collective set of values to operate from. So thanks for the prompt. It's been an interesting um, source of constant discussion internally here as we've worked on the project, because um, usually we are able to orient our sense of rightness in a project around Mm -hmm. consumer needs, consumer values. And in this case, we're working not only on behalf of, you know, the kids, the students Mm -hmm. of Madison Park and the rest of the BPS, um, but there's certainly a um, sort of larger population objective. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and so we've had to question our own implicit values over and over again mm-hmm. throughout this mm-hmm. process. It's it's complex because uh, there's also a political element uh, to it as well, where uh, your highest value could be the interests uh, of students, but we've got a lot of ideas about what that means, and it can quickly become a political uh, discussion. Uh, and I think as you're seeing in the political context, there's a lot of contestation of values Uh, about a number of things. I mean, we're lucky, uh, I think, in some ways to maybe have a little bit more political and values homogeneity in the the Northeast, but uh, we see things playing out in in some pretty wild ways in the political discourse, and and certainly there are some signs of that even here in Boston. So we've got to kind of figure out how can we uh, 
kind of act on our highest values, but not lose sight again of the need to drive towards some collective agreement and, and some direction and to be sensitive to the fact that it, there really are a plurality of values and ideas. And do you think that that, um, let's see, how do I say this? Like, are the politics of it important because you're a politician or do you think they're important for a, a, a bigger reason than that? Um, I've never really thought of myself as a politician, <laughs> but may, maybe I am. Certainly the mayor is a politician and, and, and as, uh, as his partner in this work, uh, maybe that's me too. Um, I, I think uh, maybe I'm more sensitive to it now because education is a space that can be a hotly contested space uh, around the, the ideas and actions taken in the space. Um, one of my good friends and one of the other city leaders, John Barrows, who leads economic development for the city, uh, reminded me before I took this position, education is something that everybody cares about, probably unlike any other department or, or policy area in government. You went to school, you have a kid, uh, you've seen a school, there's a school in your neighborhood, so you've got some vested interest in, in uh, the success of education. Uh, what, whatever your vantage point may be, and everybody kind of has an opinion about it. And so, you know, how do you have productive discourse uh, about all of those opinions? Um, and how do you shape a common agenda, I think, is where the, the politics come into play. And yeah, it was a loaded question, and I didn't mean to call you and call names <laughs> or anything. Um, but I, w I guess what I was getting at was, is the um, consensus and discourse important to the outcome or is it important to getting to um, results kind of like Pete was talking about in the intro you know how do you when you're trying to innovate a big part of the process is navigating mm -hmm. all of those roadblocks and barriers and yeah. place where places where innovation can get squashed so I think the politics are terribly uh, important um, if they aren't acknowledged and managed well a lot of stuff is a non-starter uh, if you don't kind of recognize the, the dialogue that's happening, the, the points of contention and dissension, you may never get whatever it is uh, off the ground. Uh, the politics also have a, a kind of resonance that, uh, especially in my position, uh, I can't be tone deaf to. You've got to keep track of the spectrum of opinion and, and look for, I think, some of the harmonization and resolution uh, around that. Um, and then the, the politics has to be guided to uh, some form of direction, maybe not complete uh, consensus, but harmonization, uh, again, to help us move as a city or help us move as a community, you know, wherever the, the locus of change may be. So you can't you can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if that. Um, so then one of the things we want to talk more with you about is is how design thinking um, and, and the approach that Continuum takes to problem solving, um, how that's been relevant to you and how that's mm -hmm. fed the high school redesign process. And I'm wondering if um, this is a false binary, but like, is the design thinking method useful as part of that community engagement discourse creation? Um, or uh, do you see it as more useful in the idea development and um, insight? Uh, I, I think it's both. I mean, I've, I find design thinking liberating uh, in terms of the work that we need to do. 
Uh, one, because it, uh, design thinking helps you operate on a faster cycle than bureaucracy tends to operate. And so I think it creates a different kind of urgency and pace to the work. Uh, there is a necessity to be inclusive of many voices uh, in design thinking. And I think that that's our aspiration oftentimes, even when we don't know how to best do it or have the tools to do it or know how to use those tools. Um, and I think it starts to challenge what is a limitation of some of the way that we do the work, especially in education. We see almost everything as a planning problem. Um, when in fact, when we're talking about um, what the future of learning looks like, when we're talking about what the future of work looks like, those are design challenges by and large and not something that uh, we just tinker on the margins and plan better around the model that already exists if we're going to do something transformative. And so design thinking puts us in that space, but I think we will uh, maybe talk a little bit later about some of the limits on public imagination to really take full advantage of design thinking. And so this is a muscle that I think we're starting to develop. And in Boston, we're fortunate to have a superintendent and Dr. Tommy Chang, who comes from a design thinking background. It's, it's his home base. In a lot of ways, part of the challenge is for him to build an organization that has that muscle and operates that way and to build a culture both inside of the school system and among the uh, uh, education stakeholders where that becomes a de facto way of operating as well. Um, I think at a cultural level, if it can take hold, it will create a different kind of agency for community stakeholders as well, because it's not just them sitting and waiting for the plan. It's not just them begging to be uh, in the planning process. It's them being able to take a set of tools and say, we have the freedom to design and we can be in a different kind of dialogue with, with the systems that we interact with when we are co-designing, when we're designing in a space that's different with, uh, than they are and with a different set of assumptions. Mm -hmm. It does seem like, um you know, you talk about the need to build an organization within BPS um, and the city and, and a culture within that organization that um, is designed, has the, um, like the muscle and the reflexes built around design thinking. Um, it seems like on the community level, the challenge may be um, not insignificant because <laughs> a lot of what you're talking about is changing like people's basic mental model around mm -hmm. what high school is and does that's right from what sounds like kind of an old industrial version where high school is spitting out kind of human resources that mm -hmm. are prepared for mm -hmm. um, their next step um, to something that's much more integrated um, how have you seen the community change um I think one, just being in a process where you're free to imagine has been a space that many in the community have stepped into. Um, I think one of the uh, perhaps innovations in what we did was just creating a design kit for the community. We had to model through a series of meetings, how do you answer a set of design questions and generate ideas and do the synthesis. But because uh, this was largely a non-controversial topic, uh, this was something where we could hand those tools over to folks and say, you can have this conversation on your own. And all we're asking is that you push the information back to us so that we can help to synthesize. And so uh, literally, um, 
I think you attended a meeting last summer with us and we had some people leaving that meeting saying, this is one of the best meetings I've ever been in because what we did and the way we engaged was so unlike uh, any other setting that we've been in, especially talking about the educational issues that we typically talk about. So if nothing else, it's kind of given uh, people uh, a look at a different kind of process. It's opened up a new way of thinking for folks. And I think we're trying to figure out, well, how do we keep pursuing this? If there's an appetite for this kind of process, how do we keep going with it? That's cool. So for us, um, I'm going to ask if you could break it down for us a little bit more. Cause, mm-hmm. um, for Pete and Ken and Kip and I, it feels like our everyday life. Yeah. And I know that that's not the case um, on your side of the table. So can you talk a little bit more in detail about how it's felt different, some examples or or moments where that difference has come to life? Sure. Uh, so I think one has been the, uh, sometimes not always, but the mix of people in the room. So. The design process has allowed for students, educators, parents, nonprofit partners to be in the room together, having conversations with one another as appropriate. Those groups were were sometimes separate, but uh, it isn't often enough that you get that kind of diversity of perspective uh, in a room, and especially young people and students, uh, the the people who this is most about uh, are often uh, left out. I, I think it is different for people to work in a more or less undefined space. We had two broad questions uh, for people, and what we said to people is start thinking, start ideating uh, about this. We weren't going to come to the table with a prescribed answer for you, or we weren't coming in with a process to say, here's what we thought of, and basically the question we're asking is, do you buy into it or not? So this was generative uh, in, in a very different way uh, for people, uh, and I think that that mattered. I think um, where we have to get to is the prototyping piece of this. So how do you translate all of that thinking and ideas into some things that people can feel and see and test? Uh, that is going to start to drive home to people that design thinking produces something different than a planning process does necessarily. People are used to the plan, the document being produced as kind of the outcome or output uh, of a process. But what we're trying to say is, no, if we're, if we're operating in a different way, what is produced is a new experience that we can learn from. Um, I want to come back to the prototyping thing, but first, did you see... Um, in that generative process, did that invite more um, kind of positive response? Because I can imagine that if you're used to putting an idea in front of a, an audience, um, that's sort of an invitation for uh, uh, nitpicking mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. complaints. Yeah. Um, did the tenor of the conversation change? I think by and large positive, but even the, the meeting where you attended, we had the range of this was a revelation to what the hell was this? <laughs> Um, you know, and, and I think it was outside of folks' expectations and it's also catching our team on the learning curve uh, mm-hmm. as well. So how do we take this process, make it relevant and productive 
for folks who are participating? How can we make sure that we're really clear about what we're doing and what we intend to produce? Some of this is the the tension of uh, adopting a new way of working, uh, it being a different way of working, uh, and uh, it working up against our traditional systems and our traditional practices uh, as well. Yeah, how is that? Uh, how is that connection to the traditional way of working happening? So, you know, right now we've produced a set of design principles out of this uh, large-scale ideating. Uh, Part of the question for us is, how does this get absorbed into the strategy and the structure of the districts, of the district and and individual schools? Uh, What do we actually build from this set of ideas? Uh, And does it just push us back into a form of the planning cycle, where now we get less nimble because uh, we kind of aren't following through on some design principles. Uh, There are also practical matters, uh, resource and capacity constraints and some other things. Um, You know, the the superintendent was very articulate recently and he is uh, someone who sees the world through an innovation and design lens, but he's very sober about um, his organization needing to meet some near-term horizon practical goals. There are fires to put out. There are things to shore up. There are things to make sure uh, uh, are stable that are short of working in that innovation space. But he's also got to be mindful of building the innovation capacity and the innovation muscle. And so how do you strike that balance in an organization that largely was never built for innovation? Hmm. And how is he doing that? Carefully. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, a couple of things. I mean, he has designated a managing director of innovation uh, in the district. And, you know, maybe for the past couple of cycles, there's been someone with the innovation title. But I I think the superintendent is going a little bit deeper to define what that is and certainly define it uh, in respect to uh, the traditional operations. And, And what I mean by that is... He's clear that there's a one to three year horizon, which is about a lot of the practical and stabilizing matters, uh, and that there's a three to five and beyond horizon that is more of the innovation horizon. Somewhere where they meet, there is uh, some bleeding and leading edge stuff, and, and maybe what was on the longer term horizon bleeds back into the short term uh, in both strategic and opportunistic ways. But Part of it is figuring out how do you systematize that in some ways? How do you better understand the capacity that it takes even to work within in that paradigm? And I think that's a growing edge for that big piece of city government. Yeah, that's cool. And even to use the process of getting through years one, two, and three as um, an opportunity to build advocates and to kind of indoctrinate people within the no, system right. to this that's way right. of working. He's also had a, a number of pretty uh, refreshing uh, staff-level discussions about innovation and bringing people in from the outside to understand uh, how they're seeing the world. A uh, good friend of mine, Dwayne Edwards, who used to be the design lead at Jordan Brand, uh, came in to talk about his pencil school and to really challenge educators thinking about learning on a faster loop uh, who's actually in front of a student to help them learn. And so what Dwayne does is he brings in the heads of the design houses from New Balance, Nike, Converse to be the instructors, um, not 
traditional teachers. And I'm not sure that these people would describe themselves as teachers, but they know uh, the design industry and they know their business well, uh, and they can help to instruct and support young people in that. Um, you know, they've talked about uh, disruptive and exponential change in technology and what that means in terms of what we're actually uh, teaching young people. You know, if it's true as uh, some of the forecasting folks say that 60% of the jobs that young people will have in the next 10 years haven't been invented yet, there's a question, a huge question about what the purpose of learning and education is. We've got to figure out what we're pre preparing young people for uh, with this big question mark out there. Yeah, and I think um, sort of like as you were describing earlier, it becomes less about um, <clears throat> those proxy indicators mm -hmm. and more about what are the um, capacities that we're embedding in kids. That's right. Because uh, it's it may perhaps less about um, a hard skill and more about mm -hmm. flexibility and adaptive mm -hmm. soft skills. Yeah. And, and the feedback may just simply have to become more relational in some way. So if we're building a broad capacity, the A, the B, or the C doesn't tell us that much about the capacity, the GPA probably doesn't tell us that much about the capacity. So there's got to be a way that we can, in a more relational fashion, describe the growth and development that we're seeing in students, tell them about it, exchange with them about it, get a sense of, about their own opinion about their growth and development as well, because part of that assessment has to be a meeting of the minds. Are you seeing the same growth that I'm seeing in, you know, A's, B's, and C's may facilitate some of that conversation, but maybe not at the depth when you're talking about, you know, nurturing well-rounded people. It also becomes extrinsic validation rather than mm -hmm. intrinsic growth, I guess. It's sort of um, like you were talking about your friend who brings in um, uh, design heads from, mm -hmm. from the footwear companies, where it sounds like more of an apprenticeship model where you are, through the educational process, um, demonstrating and um, practicing the kind of life skills and job skills that kids mm -hmm. will need when they when they graduate. Well, and it's also uh, a different level of exposure as well, because one of the things that I think young people who come through his program don't realize is that it's not a just it's not just about you being a drafts person. It's not just about who draws the shoe. Uh, there's marketing behind it. There are, are very technical aspects to the work, um, and there are probably ten careers associated with producing a viable product line and not just do you know how to draw uh, a shoe that that excites us from a visual standpoint yeah that is not just about killer footwear right. but the whole uh, business right. that wraps around that exactly um one of the things that i've seen recently very recently um about this notion of um kind of innovation and big ideas and the like crunch point as it turns into the typical um, uh, language of the system, the planning process, mm. um, is within Madison Park. Mm. So we housed our project mm -hmm. within Madison Park. And, and thank you. It was a, an awesome experience. Um, I think the, the teachers and the kids and the staff that we met there were amazingly dedicated to the school. Um, but We've seen the design principles now need to shift into some really, really tactical modes. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. Kevin is writing mm -hmm. the, the um, turnaround plan, I think probably as we speak, as we speak. this moment. Um, how has that process 
how has that been? Like, and is that a good example of the design principles and design thinking practice turning into um, tactics for the school, or do you see opportunities? I, I think it. I think it is a good example. It's a starting point, uh, though, uh, because even at Madison, uh, a school that, uh, especially at the leadership level, is is open to this process, we can see some of the tensions uh, as well. You've got to bring. Uh, the whole school community into that thinking, one, to validate what's come out of it uh, and to to buy into it. And you have to have a conversation about uh, what are the valuable translations uh, of that. So, you know, one, we had to deal with uh, the turnaround status uh, being declared a, a school that needs improvement. How do we leverage this? In some ways, it was very opportune. I do have questions about whether we're fully taking advantage of the opportunity to be as ambitious as we can be about school design, now having all of uh, kind of this design content with us to think about. Um, certainly, there are still having to think about resource constraints and a number of other things. We're in a great conversation with Kevin and his team now about the redesign of Pathways overall, and you guys helped us with that, which is great. So to do an audit of the pathways and to see if they meet a set of criteria around relevance, connection to future employment, uh, the vibrancy of the, the learning and instruction, and to, based on that audit, make decisions about what lives and what doesn't live going forward and how you replace that with programming uh, that is uh, more relevant and more valuable for students. But you can see some of the pain in that because there are a few things that have come up as things that either need to be overhauled or that we need to consider just to take out of the mix where people kind of say, ah, but that was my favorite thing. You know, I know my students really liked that uh, as well. Those things are not untrue. But the question is, are these the pathways that get us to the results and the outcomes for students that we want? We've got to weigh that. Yeah, it's, it's in the last couple of weeks, it feels like we've seen we've seen you guys facing those really tough decisions where it's almost like to use the footwear example we have we have the awesome shoe and now you're trying to figure out what is the business and the marketing and the plan mm -hmm. around it and mm -hmm. um and it we've seen the the vision be challenged by the reality mm -hmm. of budget mm -hmm. and of kids yeah. who are already in the program and um the popularity of it and all of these like very real mm -hmm. um very real facts and uh, I'm wondering if I guess it's not a, it's not a well formed question, obviously, but like, um, how are you and your role helping to push those day to day decisions mm -hmm. towards a more um, innovative direction? Uh, one, I think, uh, just by insisting that the conversation continue, that we've got to continue to interact with these ideas and ask the question: What are we going to do? with the valuable content that was produced out of the, the design process. The other piece uh, that I have to do is create room for risk. Um, I'm not sure uh, that schools by their very nature or districts are uh, organizations uh, accustomed to or comfortable with risk. Uh, innovation work uh, demands a fair amount of risk. Um, Risk has been uh, endured in, uh, in a variety of ways. And so I think part of what you hear in some of the tension is that risks were taken sometimes. Maybe, maybe they weren't framed that way. 
Uh, maybe it wasn't clear that a risk was being taken, but something happened where it didn't go uh, as planned. Something happened uh, that over time, I think, has created a risk aversion and maybe a kind of jadedness at different layers uh, of the system uh, that, that contributes to a risk aversion that um, you can understand why it exists, but it's a huge barrier, huge barrier. Uh, if we are um, serious about making some breakthroughs and doing some transformative work, We've got to take uh, some calculated risks, some knowable risks, um, and balance that uh, against the things that we know we have to do and the stability that we have to create uh, as well. So I've got to figure out how do we create the room for risk and trial. The design thinking process helps us if we think about uh, certainly prototyping and testing uh, and learning. But again, we have to get in, into that cycle and demonstrate the ability to learn. I would argue also that what we haven't done a good job of oftentimes when we take the risk, when we try something new, is actually to learn from it. Part of it is an artifact of the planning process because we spent two years, three years trying to put together the plan. The plan was so complex, you could guarantee that something was going to blow up, but we didn't react to it well. And, and so our takeaway from a lot of it was that X initiative didn't work. X initiative was a failure. And we put it to the side and don't learn much about it and certainly don't want to invest another two years into figuring out how to make it right. So we've got to get on a different cycle and and create some processes for us to learn more dynamically and do continuous improvement in our work. Yeah, I think um, that's a great point that people love to talk about the glowing positive side of innovation and um, much less so about the risk uh, side of innovation, but they definitely go hand in hand. And that seems like a big part of the um, culture change that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past and that we've seen in working with you is um, that there that there aren't great methods or processes right now for the system to learn from itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so that feels like part of that um part of that organizational shift and cultural shift that you yeah. were talking about earlier. And if I can just uh, toot the superintendent's horn, he is he is somebody who is deadly serious about adult learning. Uh, I think part of what he's learning is that uh, there is uh, enough other activity uh, and some amount of distraction that kind of takes away from his ability to focus on that. But he's clear that continuous improvement uh, and transformation depend on adult learning and, and education. It's funny you have a special term for that, that people can continue to learn and grow even as adults. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you think about risk in the context of education? So, it, you know, you guys can edit this out because I'll say something that's not very client-friendly, but <laughs> when we're working with our corporate clients, risk is usually about it's about money, right? Mm -hmm. And money is certainly important, but that is a different level of risk than talking about the um, education and livelihood of Boston's youth. Right. Um, so how do you, how do you, like you said, be strategic or yeah. um, conscious about the level of risk that you're taking? So I think you framed it well because uh, the the highest uh, level of risk is about. Um, that student's potential, uh, that student's learning time, uh, the, the future success of that student. And, and I think what makes us uh, 
quite understandably and strategically measured uh, about a lot of things is we don't want any students' time and life wasted in this process. But that bumps up against a set of results that we see where we know we aren't getting the job done for every student. So the question is, where are we going to try to do something different that stands a chance of producing a better result? Um, I think we have to be clear about where we're taking those chances, uh, negotiate and create some opt-in on some of those chances. I, I don't think there is or should be much much tolerance for a kind of blind experiment. You don't know that you're in it, um, and we'll see what happens. And it works or it, or it doesn't work. And especially if we have a culture that doesn't continue to learn, it's likely that a lot of it won't work or get better uh, over time. So we've really got to figure out how we create a little bit more of the risk space together and give families and students the opportunity to say, we want to be a part of working on the frontier uh, here as well. And maybe it doesn't have to be for everybody. I think we have to kind of figure out some different participatory roles in some of that frontier and innovation work uh, that, that are mindful uh, of not having students be the primary bearers of risk. You know, there's also, you know, the, the risk that uh, adults face. Uh, this is about my job. This is about my position, my standing, and some other things. Uh, so I think we have to take seriously the ways that uh, people feel vulnerable in the process beyond uh, students. Uh, but we also have to figure out some ways to negotiate and, and land on uh, this is about the young people first. The rest of us have to negotiate. Some of the sacrifices we will have to make. It's not that we might have to make, that we will have to make to get to the result. Yeah. I think um, if you're successful in changing sort of where the value is placed in the system, it potentially gives more permission for that sort of mm -hmm. exploration and risk-taking. Where if, if, if it does become less about those proxy measures and more about the, the big stuff, mm -hmm. um, what what the players in the system are working for yeah. shifts. I mean, I think we also need to think about where the risk sharing opportunities uh, as well. We tend to think about K to 12 uh, very much in a silo. But again, if we come back to this ecological view of learning, we've got great nonprofits, we've got great think tanks, civic institutions. Is there a way to partner where there is some risk sharing uh, that's done uh, in there? So something to think about. Um, you talked really early on about um, equity, educational equity, and this sort of biases that are built into the system. Mm -hmm. As you think about um, risk, so innovation is high reward, also high risk. Do you think that the responsible thing to do is to look at the neediest learners where there's the potential biggest feedback um, or the... Um, perhaps safer places to take to take risk where learners are maybe have more of a safety net or support system around them it's it's a challenging and difficult question so in public education i mean we're talking uh in boston about primarily students from low-income backgrounds we're talking about uh, mostly students of color who across a number of our systems are disadvantaged in many ways so if you want to talk about 
uh, disproportionality and disparity in education, it's likely that their families are facing these same disproportionalities and disparities in terms of healthcare access, in terms of access to livable wages and jobs. Um, so one part of this says that you know you need a big transformation if in fact you are going to do the best and the most for the most disadvantaged uh, in our system. Uh, and so you know working in a way that is just about you know the folks who have uh, the privilege and and the capital to bear it may be one way uh, to test, but I'm not sure it's an effective way to support. Uh, the most disadvantaged uh, in our system. So I think we've got to figure out how to do that. But again, be mindful that um, perhaps the risk is greater for folks who have so little to risk. Yeah, I guess that's what that's where I was going with it too, is that the temptation I could see would be um, to test in a safer environment, but you're also, but that's not the true need that right. you're testing with right. then. And then, and then you do need to have kind of a protective barrier or think really carefully about how do you bound the prototype, you know, or how do you contain the prototype so that if it, if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, those kids are not mm -hmm. at, a, at mm -hmm. a profound loss. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some of the difference between privilege and a lack of privilege is recourse. Mm -hmm. So when something doesn't work out for you, you, you fall, something catches you. Uh, you have another avenue. Uh, I think what we have to figure out is if we're going to be in more of a risk-taking mode, what's the recourse that we want to offer? What's the backstop that we want to offer? We shouldn't be uh, incurring risk in a way where you put all chips in and, hey, if it doesn't work, you know, you completely crapped out. That's That, that can't happen. We need to, to build some backstop. Yeah. Um. I know we have just a couple minutes left. Um, can we talk about we've um, we're at a sort of resting point in our work together, um, but high school redesign is marching forward. Mm -hmm. um, what are you hoping for next from the initiative? So we're still talking uh, about a lot of this among our planning group, but I'll tell you what I hope. And uh, Kristen McSwain is across the room, and look at her; she's giving me the evil eye. <laughs> you getting there? I <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so here, here are a couple of things. Uh, we've got to get high school redesign better integrated with the strategic plan for the district. And so I think it's got to be featured and woven in in a different way. Uh, it is certainly a feature of the superintendent's 100-day plan, but the focus there is primarily on Madison Park. We've got to figure out what's the, the three- to five-year plan for how we do both the school level and systems change that will support this work. Uh, I think secondly, we have got to get to the point where we're prototyping and testing some things. We've got to put some things on the ground that we can learn from that are consistent with the principles that we've developed. Third, we've got to figure out what's the next scale of interaction and engagement. I think where we fell down a little bit in our last phase, and it was more bandwidth uh, and, and not uh, an issue of interest or desire, was that we didn't keep communicating uh, what was going on. We didn't give people the window in and be clear about how they can continue to participate and encourage them to keep thinking beyond Madison Park, to keep trying beyond Madison Park. And so we've got to figure out the strategic communications and engagement uh, that keeps us moving. 
That's great. Thank you so much. This is uh, thank you. a really um, fun conversation, and um, I hope we continue it. Yes, indeed. And thank you uh, so much for your partnership. It's been terrific. Thank you both. Yeah, Ron, we really appreciate your your time and, and just sharing your expertise on sort of education and especially sort of the risks that are involved when you have kind of students potential involved. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and just your whole role as the chief of education. So cool. Augusta, thank you for being here as well. Um, thank you to all of our listeners today. We hope you enjoyed the resonance test. Uh, and we hope to catch you up on future episodes as we explore different ways that people get their ideas out into the world and into people's lives. If you'd like to learn more about the high school redesign project that Ron was speaking of, uh, go to highschoolredesign-boston.org. And if you want to learn more about Continuum in general and the work that we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks for listening.